0: Okay, so tonight I'm going to try to make a couple practical applications of some of the things I've been talking about the last two weeks. So it might be a little bit disjointed because I want to kind of make as many as possible, um, but I couldn't decide what order to do it in. And, so I'm, and I'm going to be drawing on um, really things from the last two weeks. So if you've missed one of those, some things may seem random, but then you'll just have to take my class or whatever. But um, anyway... A key theme, especially the first week, was that encounter with the human body is an essential component to human communication and human, humans finding affirmation of their identity, okay? And so the first sort of practical issue I wanted to address tonight and apply some insights from the theology of the body to was our modern forms of disembodied communication, Okay, what happens when our communication, when the communication between persons loses more and more of its bodily element? And, I mean, you guys are living in this. This was new. Email did not become a thing until my senior year of college. Seriously, email. So, really, this, the last 20 years have been really revolutionary in, in the gradual disembodiment of the communication between persons. So I want to suggest three ways in which relationships are suffering due to this form of communication, acknowledging that there are a lot of benefits too. Okay, So I'm gonna be saying some negative things, so please don't think that I totally hate technology, I don't. Um, but when it comes to personal relationships, I think there is a cost. Okay, So the first and perhaps the most obvious has to do with our ability to be present to others. Okay, The body, by its nature as a physical symbol, Right? It's what made us present to the world, right? It's what made Adam and Eve realize that they were different and had um, a deeper dimension to one another than just the animals or the rocks or the plants, okay? Our body is what makes us concrete, tangible, approachable by those around us. So when we are met with the possibility of relating to others through our various communication devices rather than through our bodies, A strange paradox seems to occur. We begin to become insensitive to those who are actually in our bodily presence. I'm sure we've all experienced this. Our phones and other devices, they do offer possibilities for contact that was once really unimaginable, but they are cutting us off from those physically in our midst. When a person can avoid contact, eye contact with someone just because they feel awkward, don't know what to say, don't like them, don't want to get to know them, you can just kind of pretend you're on the phone. Um, Or you can completely miss an opportunity where you might welcome a stranger or comfort a classmate or spend time with a sibling because you are essentially absorbed with matters or persons that are essentially abstract from us. Okay, when this happens, Our humanity has begun to erode, and the particular dimension of our humanity that is affected there is that feminine dimension that I talked about last week, that ability to pay attention to persons that we all have as humans, women tend to excel at, Um, and so that makes it really scary because as women, we're the ones that are supposedly a little bit more naturally attuned to persons. And yet, our technology takes us out of the concrete moment and makes us, for all intents and purposes, removed from those in our bodily presence. One of my students, uh, two years ago, pointed out, its was kind of blown away, she said, you know, for a woman, the choice to abort is often a mirror of this very dynamic. A woman makes the choice favoring the abstract over the concrete. She chooses an idea, like... Freedom, security, independence over the very concrete in the flesh person that she carries within her. Okay, it is a direct attack upon our feminine genius, that ability to pay attention to persons. And it only feeds the sort of typically masculine tendency to get lost in the abstract. Okay, and so it's in a sense um, attacking that sort of feminine dimension of the personality that we all we all need to have, okay, to some degree um, when we do this, okay? So it is important that we moderate our use of technology so that we can enter into each moment and offer the best of ourselves to those nearest to us, okay? Um, on the other hand, I want to talk about how it, how it affects that masculine dimension, that ability to abstract from our emotions and sort of focus in depth on an issue, which is also a very critical part of our humanity, and how that is being affected by technology. Okay? One feature of our bodies, a huge feature, is that our bodies, in their concreteness, in their physicality, they limit us. Our bodies confine us to a certain space and time. We can't bi-locate, we can't time travel. That's the meaning of presence. We are here now, this place, this time. Such a condition necessarily limits our reach. Even the most talented, multitasking supermom knows that she has physical (laughs) limits, okay? I think tonight I've reached my physical limit. Um, But the challenge posed by our modern technology is that it carries within it a certain promise of infinity. A certain promise of unlimitedness. Look at all the friendships you can rekindle. I mean, you guys are still making friendships, but when I think of you know, college and high school and grade school, I mean, there's so many friendships that I could conceivably sort of rekindle. Look at all the new ones you can make. Um, time, distance, quantity, no issue. On the disembodied social network, everybody's within reach. And by the way, not just persons, information, right? All the articles you can read, all the blogs you can keep up with, all the blogs you can write, you know, it's crazy, right? But what is being experienced, and I'm sure many of you have experienced it, is an increasing superficiality of our engagement, okay? In relationships and in the intellectual life, okay? Our human body is not made for a thousand friends. Just as our limited brains are not meant to spend 24 hours a day reading. So we're seeing a shallowness in relationships and a lack of depth in intellectual endeavor. Because, okay, we know that no one can read every article that they find interesting or supposedly edifying, okay? But the problem is that people aren't trying to anymore. There has been so much skimming, right? You feel like there's, I remember in college having to research for papers, and it was sort of a fun adventure. You would look in the card catalog and hunt down an article or an essay and you copy it and you read it. You guys have so much at your fingertips, but at the same time, it can be overwhelming, right? How are you gonna read all these hundreds of articles and, and things, okay? So we find ourselves skimming, okay? But after you skim too long, it makes it difficult to take in a full article. Think about your stomach. If you fast for a couple days, and you sit down to eat like a huge awesome meal, can you usually finish it? (laughs) You're like, yeah, you can. I, I always feel like I get full sooner than I think. Your stomach does shrink after you fast. So you can't just take in the full meal, okay? Our attention span shrinks after a steady diet of skimming. Okay, And it, college students in particular have access to research materials that were utterly unimagined by previous generations, but not everyone is taking advantage of them because they're losing their ability to concentrate. People are finding it harder to engage arguments deeply because of that false sense of the infinite that technology offers us. Okay, And so this cuts directly against that masculine dimension of our humanity, that ability to abstract and to pursue knowledge in depth. Okay? And it certainly doesn't help women, especially those who are sort of prone toward a more superficial engagement, which we talked about last week. And so, you know, this idea, and, you know, my husband has noted it too, it's not just difficult, more difficult for students to sort of follow a sustained argument and finish reading something, but even to present and write a sustained argument an argument in depth. It's becoming more and more of a challenge, okay? The fact is we don't need a thousand friends. We just need some real good ones and, you know, people that actually spend time with us and talk to us and who are there for us. And we don't need to read everything, but we do need to read good things, and many times we need to reread them, okay? So the final area having to do with technology that I want to touch on has to do with the relation of our body to the experience of shame, Since the moment of Adam and Eve's sin, the experience of shame has been inseparable from the human experience. Immediately after that sin, they were hiding from one another with leaves. They were hiding in the bushes from God. We found that shame was a unique physical experience, but it was one which indicated that something had gone wrong spiritually. The human body wasn't the source of the first sin, I mean, that source was the spirit, right? In the way man misused his freedom, okay? But the body was and continues to be the place where shame is experienced. It's the location of shame. Shame pops up wherever sin pops up. And it doesn't mean it's always my sin, okay? It could be when I'm in danger of becoming victim to somebody else's sin. If somebody bursts in on me while I'm in the dressing room at Nordstrom's, I'm gonna instinctively cover up. If I realize that someone just overheard me gossiping about them, I'm going to immediately turn red. When my son is embarrassed to tell me that he broke a favorite vase, he hesitates to look me in the eye, right? So there's all these physical manifestations of shame. But the body is the common denominator, right? They're physical manifestations. So we see, and John Paul talks about the body and shame being a kind of protective element to warn us when something's wrong. And that goes back to that principle. It's sort of the negative side of that principle that we talked about at the beginning. It is precisely in the community of other bodies when we are most aware when somebody crosses a line. Okay? We come to know ourselves in community and in an encounter for better or for worse. So when our communication with others loses its bodily element, the first thing that goes out the window is shame. When encounter with another human body is not central to our relationship with someone, the warnings and the signals that go off, that shame sends out, go unnoticed. Why are people texting things and posting things that they never would have thought to do in someone else's physical presence? Because they weren't in someone else's physical presence. We saw this happening a long time ago. Like, harken back to the mid and late 90s, okay? (laughs) When people knew they could leave a voicemail, especially if they had to say something that they felt a little bad or awkward about, like, I'm not going to come into work today, or I don't want to date anymore, right? You knew that that distance provided a buffer against feelings of guilt that shame often indicates. It should be no wonder why people are sending bullying messages, pornographic pictures, or texts to one another. Because their built-in indicator light for evil, their bodies, are being circumvented. Like a numb hand in a flame, young people are not feeling a painful warning, and they're going to get burned. When we fail to encounter a living body, we fail to grasp the depth of the whole person. And it becomes that much easier to think of fellow persons as objects. Okay, and objectification is not just sexual. I mean, young people are seeking friendships. They're putting themselves out there on their pages and posting their pictures. And what is everybody looking for? They're looking for a response. People crave likes and comments, and frankly, they get their feelings hurt when their thoughts or their pictures are ignored or only partially engaged. And think of how disappointing it must be when you supposedly have a thousand friends, right? You post something and nobody responds. The sense of the infinite only increases the pain of rejection (laughs) when a person is ignored. Okay, human beings are desperate for affirmation, but true personal affirmation can never come through this way of relating. Okay, it only comes from the embodied intimacy that we encounter in everyday life in the presence of real, live family and friends. Okay, so maintaining that true dynamic of gift that we talked about the first night, treating one another as a whole and not just a part, is so essential to human happiness that this dynamic of gift must be applied um, to, to all aspects of our life. So the next thing I want to apply that to is the dating world. Okay. Every relationship that's worthy of the human person, every expression of love involves a mutual giving and receiving on the part of the persons involved. We talked about that. But if I apply some of the considerations from last week's talk, um, it should become clear that the mutual givers and receivers in a courting relationship are not identical to one another. Okay? The man and the woman who compose the gift dynamic in a dating relationship are not replicas. and We talked about that last week. Okay, there is a very particular asymmetry in human love, which I touched on at the end with one of the questions that was asked, but I want to elaborate a little bit more. Okay, I'm going to suggest that in love, in a dating relationship, in a courting relationship, it is the man who emerges as the sort of most obvious giver, and the woman as the sort of most obvious receiver. Now, this may sound like I'm saying a woman has nothing to offer or that a man is incapable of being a receiver. That's not it. Um, Let me back up and say, let's just consider the typical dynamic of a dating relationship. In this typical scenario, who is the person who emerges as the most obvious gift giver, who brings the chocolates, the flowers, the jewelry, who carries the books, who brushes the snow off the car and usually holds the doors? Okay, the man. And who is it who receives those items and all of these deeds of chivalry? The woman. Great. But if love is going to be mutual, how is, it that, how is it that men receive and how is it that women give? Okay, where's the mutuality? Love is supposed to be mutual, not the sort of one-sided thing. Okay, The truth is it does exist, but at a more subtle level. Let's start with the woman. How does a woman make a gift to the man she cares for? We talked about this at the very end. When a woman wants to make a man feel good, what does she do? Does she tell him that his hair looks great with that gel? Um, Does she bring him jewelry and flowers? Nothing is preventing her from doing those things. That's fine. But the question is, will it really succeed in making him feel good, in making him feel loved? A woman's primary gift to a man, the gift that truly succeeds in making him feel good, isn't actually a thing right? If he is giving things, she is providing that essential response to a gift, without which it isn't a success, right? That gratitude, that receptivity, that appreciation of what he's done on her behalf. We don't compliment his outfit, we compliment his deeds, his activities, his choice of movie or restaurant. We, you know, listen to his opinions with interest, his gestures of chivalry we express gratitude for, okay? So, in giving this gift of gratitude, why is that gratitude considered a gift? Okay. Well, because it is an attitude which communicates an appreciation of a man's worth. And so I want to talk for a minute about something that we did touch on last week, just in a little bit more depth. A man and a woman tend to relate to their bodies and hence understand their identities in unique ways which are intimately tied to their sexual differences. A woman's identity is deeply connected to her body and to its nurturing power. Remember a woman's body and its natural processes are constantly reminding her from an early age that she's a woman. Okay? She never needs to, you know, she seldom feels the need to sort of prove she's a woman. Okay? In the in a way that we see men sometimes trying to prove that they're men, her body reveals it to her. And in a certain way, she is so closely linked with that body that she identifies herself with that body. Now, that's a little dangerous, right? Because sometimes a woman struggles with reducing her identity to her body. Okay, we're the ones that spend more time in front of the mirror. That's not a bad thing, but we can see how that can lead to issues. Okay, but she is the one that tends more toward that idea of, I am my body. A man's body-soul relationship is a little less direct. His body does not immediately reveal to him that he's a man. Because his physique is characterized by strength and designed for work, his body serves more as an instrument to his identity. It is precisely the deeds he accomplishes through his body that really form the basis for his sense of self. So throughout the ages, we see initiatory rites for young men who try to prove their manhood by various actions. Just think of how much more trophy-oriented men are. This is from my husband. He said, we don't want to just tell people the fish that I caught was yay big. We want to have it stuffed, put on the wall, so we can point to it. Look at that fish! Okay? (laughs) And of course, in our fallen world, other material objects, cars, clothes, tech toys, and even women, also tend to be viewed by men as symbols of status, success, and achievement. My husband's Ph.D. diploma is on the wall of his office like the shield of a conquered foe. Okay? As he informed me in the classical epic, the armor and weapons of the defeated enemies are incredibly important markers of achievement. <laughs> Beowulf ripped off the arm of Grendel and hung it on the wall, and things haven't changed much at all. <laughs> Men are, as he put it, stuff-oriented, and see stuff as symbolic of our achievements and of our feelings. So, of course, men tend to give stuff as a sign of love. Flowers, though, not monster arms. So, that was Trey's contribution. Um, But this, too, I think, obviously we see the danger there, right? It presents a danger that a man will so distance himself from his body and merely view it as an instrument. Okay, so they tend more toward that extreme of I have a body versus the woman I am a body. Both are skewed and not correct. The answer is somewhere... In the middle, right? Um, But that said, it is important that we be sensitive to what builds a person's identity. And this can make a huge difference in our relationships. Okay, so obviously, appreciation for what a man does and says communicates a respect for his person that affirms and encourages him. And he experiences that as love. Okay, just as a woman, while she deserves and wants to be respected, she feels loved when she's given gifts. Okay, So what are a few practical lessons here? Well, for men, I would remind you that every, t- every action you take in a relationship has the character of a gift. Now, does this mean you'll have a better chance of winning a woman's heart if you drop a huge wad of cash on every date? No. But never underestimate the value of being a man with a plan. Perhaps the most poisonous sentence in a dating relationship, especially early on, is... Uh, I don't know, what do you feel like doing? Okay, no. Having a plan, even if it's an inexpensive picnic, followed by a visit to a free but interesting museum exhibit, shows a woman that you took the time and effort to plan something on her behalf. It makes her feel cherished, and that's how she wants to feel. Such planning communicates a desire to please, even to surprise her with your thoughtfulness. Now, of course, there can always be fear that a plan will backfire if the woman doesn't enjoy it, and this is totally understandable. There's no reason a plan can't be flexible or could include other options in case this girl has allergies and can't go on the picnic in the park. Okay, having a plan B isn't a bad idea, but that too is a plan that you took the time to make. For the woman, how do we respond to man's efforts in a giving way? It's fairly simple. Show appreciation for them. Step back from the idea of a dream date that might have hatched in one of your daydreams, right? We are really good at daydreaming and idealizing. We talked about that. That has to do with with one of the gifts of motherhood, right? Seeing things, seeing potential in people, but we have to sometimes pull back from our daydreams and pay attention to the details that that this particular person, this real person, uh, has planned for you. Women need to let men please them believing that he has shown you a great time, given you excitement and joy is a huge thrill for a man. And I may have mentioned this last time, but I figured out why it was so hard to buy gifts for my dad and now for my husband. Um, no matter what I rack my brains over to, to try to buy for them, it seemed that the greatest gift I ever gave them was being really, really excited about what they got for me. doesn't mean men don't need tangible gifts. Um, as a sign of affection but our own appreciation is even more fulfilling to him than any any trinket so again um, one thing that can be really toxic to a man (laughs) is an attitude of sarcasm or derision it can really cut into a man's ability to give because his identity is wounded by digs at his efforts just as women are easily wounded by remarks or lack of positive remarks about our physical person now um, again, not suggesting that women always flatter and never challenge a man, okay? Um, but sometimes women only know how to communicate through ridicule or nagging, okay? An intelligent, interesting, and confident woman will always be attractive to a man, to a worthy man. But if there is, is there needs to be room in that woman's life to receive and appreciate what he has to offer. No man wants to feel useless, just like no woman wants to feel uncherished, Okay, um, you guys may not have heard of this book. It's called Mars. What is it called? Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. It was like a big thing. Okay, but there was a cute line that I wanted to that kind of echoed this. Uh, the author says, so he's addressing women, are you constantly telling your man how to drive, how to dress, how to behave? Women are good at making improvements, but this is a highly sensitive area for men. Most important thing to a Martian a man, is feeling like he's doing a good job. Question his competence and you'll not only hurt him, but you'll meet a wall of resistance. And believe me, these attitudes grow even more important in the course of a marriage. Dating in our culture today is in general a disaster. Okay? We, we must never forget that sort of toxic scenario we talked about last week. Right? We have men from the time of original sin battling an inclination to objectify women. John Paul had called that pure sensuality. And we have women dealing with very strong emotional tendencies, which um, long for love, crave relationship, and tend to idealize men. And he called that pure sentimentality. Okay, this can be a lethal combo. And I have affectionately, in in the dating world, named this the girl falls for a jerk, the GFJ scenario. Even if we are unwilling as women to ever admit that we have fallen for a not-so-worthy guy, we at least have a friend or two who has found herself in a GFJ situation. Why do girls so commonly fall for unworthy guys? Well, there is a shocking number of men serving life sentences or awaiting death sentences for murder or other atrocities who receive love letters and even marriage proposals from women who have watched their trials and find that they're really good-looking and mysterious. Now, these are extreme examples, but we all know that this dynamic is real. What causes this sort of self-destructive behavior on the part of women? Well, coupled with a woman's tendency to idealize, which we talked about last week, is that tendency toward superficiality. Remember that one of the woman's, in particular, potential flaws um, because of her orientation toward the person, right? She's able to attend to many aspects of a person at the same time. It makes her very good at multitasking. But it could lead to skimming the surface, right, to the sort of superficial, content with a shallow impression of another person, okay? So with, this is sort of a lethal combination for her. She's idealizing and she's being superficial. So um, it puts her in a situation where she's often willing to place herself in the hands of someone who's unworthy to receive her, her self-gift, Remember, a woman's identity is bound up with her body. When a woman gives her body, she feels like she's giving herself. She's person-oriented. So to her, love means, I want that person. I want that person to give himself to me. So when she offers her body in varying degrees, she thinks she's giving him her person. But why does it so often seem that he might only be in it for her body? That he can somehow separate her from her body and treat that body like an object without seeming to form a deeper emotional attachment? Well, hopefully it's clear from last week how he can do that. It is the way he's wired. Remember that masculine tendency, that ability to focus on objects, to zero in on problems, and to block out the rest. Okay, That can be a great gift but it can be a source of abuse. Recall from a moment ago that men identify respect with love. When a woman expresses that interest and admiration for a man's actions and ideas, that's when she's affirming his identity. She's not affirming his identity when she throws herself at him. She's only feeding his sinful tendency to objectify her. This actually makes it harder for a man to find love. Deep down, he does not want the woman to give herself to him. He wants to give himself to her, but he has to work up to it. Okay? There is nothing scarier for a man, if he's the giver, than to be what? He offers himself, and then he's rejected or shot down. Right? That can be an absolutely paralyzing fear for a man. Okay, And so he has to work up to it through small gifts at first and then gradually growing in the confidence that's born from her genuine appreciation. It's only then that he can ultimately offer himself in a total commitment. Okay, So it's only when we begin to understand what truly inspires a man that we will be able to build him up and not tear him down through our idea of what love means to us. Okay, We women need to ask ourselves, am I being objectified in my relationships? Am I allowing past experiences of being treated as an object to define my sense of self-worth? Am I remaining in an objectifying relationship out of fear, right, that fear that I'd rather hang on to something rather than nothing? Or because I am desperate to experience love, do I actually respect the man that I am dating or engaging in physical, intimate-ish activities with? Am I inspiring this man to perform deeds on my behalf? Could I be sabotaging a potential relationship by giving my body away to, in varying degrees, prematurely? Is he trying to become a better person? Are we even friends? <laughs> Do we share common interests? Okay, so these are important. Um, and for the, you know, I was trying to think of suggestions, you know, for men. I'm better at this with women, but the, the point is for men, obviously, we know we can feed this tendency of ours. You know it's it's only a click away on our phone right we know pornography is such a temptation so easy to access such such a terrible scourge we need to deal with it we need to get on top of it but on the positive side okay what can i do to help the women around me know that they are more than their bodies right how about Asking them questions. How about listening to them, paying attention to what they have to say, right? If we engage a woman, if we, we have to have something in common. Friendships are based on having something in common. Okay? We have to do something together or talk about something. That's going to bring out that inner dimension. Okay? And so our, our relationships have to be about something. Okay? And so one of the greatest reminders to a woman that she's more than her body is to actually. Hear what she has to say. Invite her to talk and listen to her. Okay? So that's another idea there. But um, this whole idea of um, the man and the woman relating in a sort of asymmetrical way, it, it also leads finally to this idea of dress. Okay? Now, clothes <laughs> go back to the beginning, right? the idea that we had to cover our bodies is directly related to that first experience of shame, okay, so the need for clothes is not going to go away in this lifetime, okay and I've even heard some people when they're talking about the theology of the body sort of say, well once you understand that the body is a good and it's a gift and it's meant to express the spirit um, you know, in some sense we can sort of loosen the restrictions a little bit about modesty because you know, as long as, if you see a a scantily clad woman on the billboard, well, just, you know, you don't have to turn away. Just give her a name. Make sure you know she's a person, you know. No. We're going to be stuck with this struggle till the end of time, okay? But what, what is the positive dimension of clothes? If, after the first sin, when men and women basically objectified God, right? They didn't want to receive from God. They just wanted to take, okay? If the tendency, in, in a particular way, is for a man to objectify the woman, to see her not as a spiritual physical whole, but as a potential sort of collection of body parts, right? Then the body is no longer an effective symbol. If the body is a symbol, it's able to physically express a person's inner dimension, right? If you're only zoning in on parts of a person's body, you're losing access to their inner dimension. We're fixating on the part and we're not perceiving the whole. So the body is in a sense sort of failing to be a symbol of the person. It's the role of clothes (laughs) to restore, to secure our body's role as the symbol of the person. So while it's sort of vague in many ways, the goal of modest dress is so that you look at a person and perceive them as a whole, okay? You're not sort of fixated on one part of them. And fashions are gonna change, we're always gonna have to navigate that, but um, nonetheless, You get the idea from the culture that you need to express yourself and you can express yourself however you want. What's the problem? If you're trying to express yourself through immodest stress, you are not getting expressed. Okay? Parts of you are, but the whole you is not coming across. Okay? And so again, clothes are a kind of corrective. And, you know, it's interesting that. Oftentimes when I've talked about modest dress, people will get angry and they'll say, well, why do we have to dress a certain way? If men are going to be pigs or look at us in one way, that's their fault. Okay, We all have responsibility. If a man looks at something that he knows is affecting him in a negative way, he needs to look away. He needs to pray for grace. He needs to get away from that. Okay? And sure, it's probably possible for a perfectly modestly dressed woman to be looked at as an object by a particular guy. Okay, That's not on her. <laughs> right? But we share responsibility. Okay? Because it's about being Christian and understanding that we live in community, that we do affect one another. And we want to do it for the sake of our own dignity. Okay? So it's about being Christian and also just being realists. Okay? Um, so again... You know, it's interesting. You hear things today, especially online, there's this term shaming, you know, fat shaming, or when, when you're shaming somebody um, for their physical appearance or something. And it's like, first of all, all of this is going around online. There's, there really isn't any shame anymore. So it's kind of a funny word. But, um, but this idea that it's somehow saying that your body is dirty because it needs to be covered. No. It's about securing your body's role as a symbol. And again, you may think that you are communicating your beauty and trying to get a man's attention, okay? But you're not necessarily going to draw that attention to your whole person if you don't think about modesty. And it's hard. It's very hard, right? Because we identify so much with our bodies and, you know, we take things very personally. I wouldn't advise for the young men to start critiquing women's immodest dress. That usually backfires, big time. But on the positive side, how about expressing interest, admiration, and compliments for the women that are dressed beautifully? That There's nothing that can, can encourage women to dress in a beautiful, modest way more than receiving that attention and that affirmation. And again, the biggest thing that we can do for women is to actually... <laughs> listen to what they have to say because that does remind them that they are more than their bodies.